0: This is Tariq, the host of By Every Measure. Before we begin this episode two, which deals with systemic racism and policing, I want to get something off my chest. As you probably have seen on the news, not just here, not just around the nation, but across the world, cover this story about Jacob Blake being shot in the back multiple times by a police officer. And before that, a few hours before that, I was actually working on this episode, which you're about to hear. As a black man, when you see that, I don't think you can really understand. Or even a black woman, a black man, a black person. If you see this as a black person, I don't think you truly understand the trauma of seeing someone that looks like you being Killed in a video. That same experience happened with me, George Floyd, Ahmad, Aubrey. That's traumatic. We're about to discuss policing, systemic racism policing, Reggie Jackson. And it makes me wonder would this conversation really make a difference? Would it make an impact? Would people listen? As you know, There's a lot of people in this country that don't really even believe systemic racism exists. And if you can't get people to acknowledge that, dismantling that makes it even harder. So it got me thinking. And part of me is like, can systemic racism be dismantled in policing? And to be honest with you, what I just saw this past weekend, I'm not holding my breath. But, a big but, I'm not giving up either. And this is why I am more focused on this podcast more than ever. And I believe if if Reggie and I and the guests we have on here to talk about the history, talk about it honestly, maybe maybe people in influence and power will listen and actually acknowledge that this is a serious serious issue in our country, and our country can never be better forward until we dismantle systemic racism and that goes back to seeing what what happened to jacob blake in kenosha and it is part of a systemic issue and you see people on facebook like look up his look up his criminal record he deserved it no one deserves to be shot in the back (laughs) period no one deserves to be shot in the back nonetheless multiple times close range in the back and apparently In front of his kids, which who are probably now going to be affected by this for the rest of their lives, dealing with trauma from that, seeing their father getting shot in front of them in the back. There was no need for that. You know, I could keep going on and on, but I want to let Jacob Blake's sister speak. She said it best during a press conference and she speaks to how so many in the community are feeling including me
1: when you say the name Jacob Blake make sure you say father make sure you say cousin Mm -hmm. make sure you say son make sure you say uncle but most importantly make sure you say human human life let it marinate in your mouth in your minds a human life just like every single one of y'all and everywhere in my we're human and his life matters. So many people have reached out to me, telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time, longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Mm. Emmett Till is my family. Mm. Philando, Mike Brown, Mm. Sandra, This has been happening to my family, and I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to. This is nothing new. I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry, Mm -hmm. and I'm tired. I haven't cried one time. I am numb.
0: That feeling of numbness, I feel that too. It's exhausting, it's draining, and it only speaks to the systemic issues we're talking about throughout this podcast. We're gonna start this episode now, which we recorded days before Jacob Blake was shot. As you're listening, please remember the words of his sister.
1: I'm not sad, I don't want your pity. I want change.
0: Let's begin. By every measure, 2020 has been a defining year in our history. Following the deaths of George Floyd, Bionna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, unprecedented protests against police violence happened in every state. Reportedly, the biggest civil rights demonstration in history. We watched these protests become local.
1: 88.9
0: was there at the first protest in Milwaukee. At what point do we say enough? No more! At what point do we say that this is got to stop? We can't afford to allow racist systemic regimes to come into our communities, gun us down, kill us, and there's no consequence to that action. And then shortly after, we were on site as a mural was painted honoring George Floyd. So people have seen us out here. they seen us out here. They came over and they wanted to be a part of it. Wanted to have a, a solid representation of George Floyd over here, or just I'm saying just representation of what's happening in the nation or across the world. So this is a this is a great way to show the, the power of numbers. But protests like this aren't new. In fact, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. addressed the issue of police brutality in his famous "I Have a Dream" speech.
2: There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights. When will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality.
0: I'm Tariq Moody, and this is By Every Measure, Radio Milwaukee's six-part podcast exploring the data behind systemic racism. Dr. King's dream still remains out of reach, yet to be realized. An analysis by the advocacy group Mapping Police Violence found that 99% of police killings from 2014 to 2019 did not result in officers being charged with, let alone, convicted of a crime. That's what the protesters are protesting. It's not about individual police officers. It's about the system.
2: We know that they're here to protect white people and serve us with warrants. They don't provide the same level of treatment to people of color.
0: Our conversation begins with the term that I've seen a lot on social media and in the press, um, defending actions of police. The term is called bad apples.
2: Here's Reggie Jackson. Well, Tariq, the main reason that people think it's bad apples is because we all watch cop shows and movies our entire lives. And in those cop shows and movies, the cops are always good guys. You know, there's always occasionally some bad apple, right? But eventually at the end of the show, the end of the movie, then that bad apple is removed from the police department. So when white people think about police, they think about their lived experiences with police, which are generally very pleasant. When black people think about the police, we know that our lived experiences have not been the same.
0: And to understand why those lived experiences haven't been the same for black people, we must examine the history of policing. And you probably think, oh, policing, that probably started in Europe, where like in England, Sherlock Holmes characters and Jack the Ripper, police were doing that. But American policing has a very dark and brutal history.
2: The first organized police departments in this country came out of former slave patrols. And these were patrols that were set up by white people who were afraid that black people would either try to escape their enslavement or they would try to attack whites and and have some type of insurrection or rebellion against slavery. So they developed this way of basically putting white people in a place to watch out over black people and control their movements. So as those became organized police departments, they still had the same principle in place. As
0: long as policing has had a strong presence in black communities, so have protests against the injustices and unfair treatment of those communities protests aren't anything new
2: many people forget that this didn't start with george floyd or brianna taylor uh it didn't start with vigilantes uh so-called vigilantes killing ahmaud arbery these things have been occurring year after year decade after decade century after century and black people have been protesting these things from many, many years ago. Uh, One of the the least known cases of police brutality is a a man by the name of uh, Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was murdered by police in Alabama. Uh, You know, part of a peaceful protest, uh, he and his family were chased into a small diner. Uh, The police came in and beat his mother. He tried to protect his mother, and they shot and killed him. And then basically said that, you know, he was attacking the police officers when he never was. So we protested that back in the 1950s. We protested here in Milwaukee when Ernest Lacey was killed in police custody in 1981. We protested uh, across the country after Rodney King was beaten senseless by police in Los Angeles. We protested after Mike Brown, after Freddie Gray, after Tamir Rice. All of these instances that we've been protesting that have been ignored by people have led up to now George Floyd's death uh creating protests that we've never seen to this extent
0: and those early protests reggie mentioned majority of those protesters were black and today with cases like brianna taylor and george floyd the protesters are becoming more and more diverse
2: someone told me that man they're protesting in fargo North Dakota, I was like, are you kidding me? And they're protesting in Salt Lake City. I'm like, that's got to be some white people, man, because there ain't no (laughs) black people out there, right? So that told me that things had changed. But for me personally, I understand a lot more about policing because I've talked to police officers, former and current police officers, and what they will tell you is that these cop shows are copaganda. That's what I call them. They're copaganda. They're not real. They're not based on reality. They're based on a set of principles that make the police seem like they are constantly doing good. And for the most part, they are. But they ignore all of the bad things about policing. They ignore, you know, this blue wall of silence that exists. And most Americans are surprised when I share with them how many people are killed by police every year.
0: And that number, I wasn't even ready for it. It even surprised me.
2: Since 2013, which is when the first databases started to be created by different organizations, we found that every year, the police in the United States kill over a thousand people per year. A thousand people? That is literally three people per day. One person every eight hours dies in some encounter with police. Many of those people are unarmed. You know, we've been protesting unarmed black people being killed by police. And when you think about this, the police kill a little bit of everybody, Tariq. They kill white people. In fact, the largest number of people killed each year by police are white people. The
0: argument could be said, based off the population, white people get killed by police more often than blacks. Isn't that true?
2: But guess what? White people are 61% of the residents of this country, so obviously they're going to be the highest number. But when you look at Native Americans, when you look at at African Americans and, and Latinos, what you find are disproportionate rates of police killing those groups of people. Uh, Blacks are anywhere, depending on which year you choose, anywhere from 2.5 to 3% more likely to be killed by police than white people are. Unarmed black people are five times more likely than unarmed white people to be killed by police. When you look into that data, you can understand very clearly that from the perspective of people of color, this is our lived experience with the police.
0: And that goes back to what Reggie said about lived experiences. Just like Reggie, I experience the same anxiety and stress every time I see a police officer, especially when I'm in a neighborhood where I'm not from, or especially in a neighborhood that is, I'm the only one that looks like me.
2: But white people, this isn't part of your lived experience. That police officer that that we look at, that we're afraid of, you look at him as your next door neighbor, Bob. You know, that's, that's your bowling buddy. That's the guy that, you know, coach your son's softball team. That's the relationship you have with that police officer. We know that that police officer doesn't live in our neighborhood.
0: That's true. In fact, according to the city's own data back in 2019, nearly half of Milwaukee police officers resided outside of the city. That's about 45 percent. And they've been moving out steadily since the residency requirement was lifted back in 2015. This also means that over 90 million dollars in salaries isn't being spent in Milwaukee on things like mortgages which means Milwaukee is losing property tax revenue, which could help support Milwaukee schools. We'll talk about that more later in the podcast when we get to the episode on education. Let's get back to policing. So what has happened over the last few years is you have police moving out of communities. They're serving, deepening the divide and mistrust, which is why we've seen protests over policing across the country this year. The community has had enough of the police brutality and lack of accountability. However, critics argue, why don't these protesters complain about the crime in their own neighborhoods? What about black-on-black crime, right? I hear that argument a lot, like, why are you pronounce like a, a statement is black people kill other? Why aren't you protesting that? So what do you say to that?
2: Listen, I wrote a Facebook post two years ago. Two years ago, because I started to hear those same conversations you're talking about, and and anytime there's talk of police reform, somebody will always chime in with the black-on-black crime nonsense. And this is what I say about it. It, It's very simple to me. Listen, there's no such thing as black-on-black crime unless there's such a thing as white-on-white crime. I Googled it. This is what I found. I Googled white-on-white crime. And then I Googled black-on-black crime to see how many responses there were on Google, right? And there were 50 times more responses from Google when I Googled black-on-black crime than when I Googled white-on-white crime. And I looked at the first 15 articles that came up when I Googled white-on-white crime, and they were all about black-on-black crime. Right, So there's this this phenomenon in America where we assume that the only real crime that exists is so-called black-on-black crime, black people committing crime against each other. And particularly when they say black-on-black crime, what they really mean is black people killing other black people. They don't care about black people robbing each other, black people raping each other, things of that nature. That never comes into conversation. It's always about, well, y'all killing each other, and why y'all worrying about the police killing each other? Listen. The police are not hired to kill people. That's not their job. Their job is not to kill people, but they kill a thousand people per year. And and for those who like to talk about you know black on, so-called black on black crime, I said, listen. White people kill each other. Black people kill each other. People kill people that they know. People kill people that they're around. You know why black people are more likely to kill black people? Because that's who they're around all the time, Tariq. You know why white people are more likely to kill white people? Because that's the people they are around. And we never talk about white people committing acts of violence as being white-on-white crime. And every time I hear somebody say this nonsense about black-on-black crime, I'm like, let's have a discussion of white-on-white crime. Murders happen in every country on the planet because human beings murder each other.
0: And most of the time that people commit murder, they'll get their, they'll, they'll catch them and put them in jail. So they get their justice. But the mm-hmm. problem is when a police does it, which their job is to protect and serve. And when they do something bad, nine times out of 10, they'll get their job or they might be shuffled around. So I think trying to, people don't understand that part either. It's like, when you say systemic, they're protesting the systemic issues of the police of not doing their job. And when they do something bad, like somebody in the street that does commit murder, they go to jail they do their time. The police doesn't get the same justice for their crime or no justice for their crime.
2: You know, that, that's a brilliant point, Tariq. It's, it plays out different than when, when you or I kill somebody. Tariq, if you were to leave uh, your home or your studio on any given day, and you committed a murder right in front of your home or your studio, right? Somebody's gonna pick up the phone, they're gonna call 911, the police are gonna come, they're going to arrest you with the gun in your hand, they're gonna put you in the police car, the district attorney will then charge you that same day probably, right? And then you're going to be going through the criminal justice system and probably found guilty, and you're going to go to prison for killing somebody, right? But if you were a police officer and you kill somebody, for instance, you choked Eric Garner to death in a move that was illegal. NYPD had banned the chokehold 30 years before Eric Garner. You can literally ch- not just choke a man to death, but you had six officers on top of Eric Garner, killing him. When he's saying, I can't breathe. And guess what happened to the office? No charges. Not only was it no charges, but the man got to keep his job for many years after that, right? So this is what happened when a police officer kills somebody.
0: Here's where things change. Basically, a fork in the road. There's a whole different procedure for police violence, a different set of rules. We even have a name for it, qualified immunity. According to the legal blog Lawfare, qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine that shields government officials from being held personally liable for constitutional violations like the right to be free from excessive police force. Here's what happens when police kill someone.
2: First of all, you're not going to even know who the police officer is right away in most cases. They're not going to divulge the officer's name, right? So you're going to wonder, oh, I wonder which officer that was. Secondarily, it's going to take a number of days, weeks, months before that police officer is charged and you find out who they are, if they even decide to charge him. Tariq, your name would be all over the newspaper in Milwaukee, all over the airways in Milwaukee, if you kill somebody today. Everybody would know, man, Tariq killed somebody today. But if you are Officer Tariq, it may be months before we find out that you killed somebody. We'll know that you killed somebody, but we won't know that it was you. So when we look at how the system works, and I've said this to police officers, I've said this to former Chief Flynn, until you begin to treat police officers who commit crimes the same way you, you uh, treat civilians who commit crime, then I will never have any respect for policing because there is no reason that the rules should be different for a police officer. In fact, the, 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 you, should, you should be living by a higher standard because this is an the excuse they use Tariq, all the time. You hear it all the time. Well, we have to do a thorough investigation before we release that information. And then, well, what about the charges, uh, district attorney? Oh, we have to make sure we do a very thorough investigation before we bring charges. We want to make sure we bring the right charges and we're not, you know, uh, bringing the wrong charges and, and have a chance of losing in court. Guess what? If they were to, to arrest Tariq Moody for killing somebody, they will not have to do a thorough investigation. Your behind will be in a police car. You will be in a Milwaukee County jail immediately. And that that so-called investigation to make sure they get the right charges, they can amend the charges anytime they choose. This is what district attorneys do all the time. They charge you with something and then they change it the next day or the next week or the next month. Why is it that they think that we're dumb enough to believe they can't do that with police officers? And because they don't, because we're smart enough to notice that they don't do this with police officers, we say that there are systemic problems with police.
0: Coming up next, we're talking to a 25-year veteran of the force, a former Milwaukee police captain, now retired from the police. She shares her thoughts on what we need to do to begin to dismantle systemic racism in policing.
2: Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart.
0: We're back on episode two of By Every Measure. This is Tariq Moody. On the second half of each episode of the podcast, we'll be joined by local and national leaders who are actually doing the work. People are working on solutions and each of the systems we're talking about. In this episode, we talked to Cassandra Liebel, a retired Milwaukee Police Department captain. She spent 25 years on the force and now in the next chapter of her career, she remains in public service as the interim director of the Office of Emergency Management at Milwaukee County. I wanna talk to you, like I shared you with what we're doing in this podcast and uh, some of the conversation we've had about policing in regards to systemic racism we want to talk to you about your perspective, your experience, like some of the issues are and what things can we do to eliminate systemic racism when it comes to police and the criminal justice system.
3: So law enforcement, unfortunately, is um, in the forefront of a lot of issues that plague our communities that uh, quite frankly are not law enforcement issues. And so I think that's where we as a community really need to start to look at where we utilize our law enforcement professionals. Um, Far too often they end up filling in a void of services that need to be provided elsewhere. So when you speak of the the movement now of defunding and abolishing law enforcement, there's something to that if we do it correctly. It's making sure those safety nets are in place before we pull away those resources from law enforcement.
0: Let's talk about Accountability. I know there's the people. There's always been this w- relationship between the black communities um, and police. Uh, basically, a mistrust. How how do we how do you see that change that relationship?
3: one i think you have to kind of look at it in terms of what the legislature says um there are laws in place that do protect law enforcement when it comes into these kind of situations and so wisconsin doesn't specifically have qualified immunity but you essentially have protections if you're acting under the color of law and unless they can show a criminal intent it's very difficult to get charges and convictions in these cases so you really have to look at what the le- what the letter of the law says and if there needs to be changes there you know i'm not going to sit here and pretend that um there could not be a better accounting in that area
0: i asked cassandra about their residency requirement what reggie was talking about earlier where public workers are required to live within the city of milwaukee um
3: you know i'm, I'm not quite I don't know if that's really the issue, so to speak. Um, Residency helps when you're invested in a community. But the reality is you didn't have a lot of officers who were actually living in the communities that they policed. I think the bigger issue is getting people who look like you and I to (laughs) join law enforcement to begin with so that they have a point of reference. Because that, I think, is a bigger conversation is... There are certain things in life that you just experience differently from our perspective and so having those individuals engaged in law enforcement helps break down some of those barriers as well so the residency does you know have some impact but ultimately the reality was is that most people were not living in the areas they policed
0: so basically um what you're saying that Representation Matters, yes. that, that, that would go a long way into fighting systemic racism and, and, and policing?
3: Yes, I think that um, when you look at Milwaukee Police Department, uh, we only have a 17% African-American staff. Obviously, we have a huge um, African-American community, but only 17% of our department. And so when you're having those conversations, just how I perceive, I think myself 20 years ago, joining the department and how I would interact with people versus how my partners would interact with people and not necessarily in a negative way, but there just were certain things that they could not grasp because it wasn't their lived experience.
0: Again, that probably comes back to the mistrust, but I want to know what inspired you to join the force over twenty years ago. It's this this conversation
3: that we're having, having that representation. I grew up um, seeing law enforcement and not seeing law enforcement that looked like me, and but having contact with law enforcement and how could I engage in a way that could help my community? So that was really my catalyst to say, I don't like what I'm seeing.
0: The one thing I want to talk to you about is is um, you've probably heard the term the talk, and what I mean by the talk. If you're not a black parent. You don't know what the talk is. It's basically when a parent sits down with their child and explains what to do when police pull you over, knowing you won't be treated the same as a white person. And that's passed on generation to generation, right? Um, I mean, one of the biggest examples of the talk going, arise, uh, Philando Castile in Minneapolis where he did everything right. Absolutely. How how do we... (laughs) if I have kids, I don't want like one thing I don't want to pass along when my bad passed to me is the talk. How do I get rid of that talk? What, what can, what can government police do to make sure that I don't have to give that talk or my future kids or future generations don't have to give that talk?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a challenging one. So frequently you hear people say, well, if you get pulled over, just do what they say and everything will be fine. And like you said, that did not happen in Minneapolis. (laughs) And so we have to be realistic in that. And so that's where the onus call falls back on law enforcement to say that this is not a battleground where people should need to have that conversation. And we really need to start looking at public safety as the motivator and not law enforcement if that makes sense, that we're not so much enforcing the rules and the regulations, but more what are we doing to keep the community safe? And are some of these situations counterintuitive to that? You know, I tell people all the time when someone says, well, if you get pulled over and you didn't do anything wrong, you shouldn't care if they stop you. And I go, well, I'm not in the habit of leaving my house for no reason. So if I get pulled over, I'm going to be bothered <laughs> you know I'm going somewhere and I may be picking my son up or I may be doing something so yeah it does bother me so we shouldn't have this flippant attitude about people's time people's time is important if I can count on one hand the number of times I've been stopped then you're lucky but for a lot of us that's not the case so if you get stopped pretty regularly at a certain point you're going to say enough already I'm not okay with that and we should not be okay
0: with that and when you mean by police should step up? Is this means training? Is this what what is that when you mean by police should step up when it comes to this?
3: I think moving away from the enforcement, one of the things that I, I was always challenged with was um, what we call quality of life stops when we talk about things like littering, loitering, um things like that. Like to me, I grew up, we hug, we hung out. You know, so am I loitering when I'm hanging out out in my neighborhood, you know? So when we look at those kind of things as an organization, kind of moving away from those quality of life things, because what ends up happening is we're coming into a community and we're telling them how they should behave in ways that don't necessarily impact public safety. And those kind of engagements create opportunities for us to continue to stop people and not have respect on people's time.
0: I guess my final question: So, I'm a citizen. I've heard you talk, Cassandra. So, what can I do to change this? My average person. I I live in I live in the 530206 or or neighborhood. Or I live in River West. I've been stopped five times. What are my options? What can I do to change? The situation for me and and people that look like me to keep getting stopped for doing absolutely like you said littering loitering or just looking suspicious what mm-hmm. can i do
3: you know we have a lot of power as a community and so when we talk about the black dollar we talk about you know education there are ways that we can engage and i think that we don't do enough of that filling up the census making sure we vote but participating in even local government where our budget dollars spent right now you have um city and county going through their budgets, engage in those conversations. But we have to come with a mindset of, I don't like this thing and I want to figure out how to change it, so this is what I want to do and offer up that conversation. So we have to go beyond just, I don't like it, but this is what I want to see happen.
0: The data is there. We need to be more engaged in the civic process and just more engaged, period. According to a recent NPR listener poll, 55% of Americans say they have not personally taken any action to better understand racial issues in America. Among white people, that jumps up to 61%. And for black people, it's 48%. That's a lot of inaction. So I decided to start Googling and searching for solutions, ideas on how to be more engaged. Doing that, I came across a podcast called The Untold Story, Policing, which goes even deeper and looks at police union contracts and gives steps on how to end violent police misconduct. The podcast is part of an initiative called Campaign Zero that uses data and research to provide policy solutions and recommendations like decriminalizing or deprioritize enforcement of low-level offenses to begin to dismantle systemic racism in policing. We will share the links on our site at RadioMilwaukee.org slash measure. So here's just a recap of some of the solutions we discussed in this episode of By Every Measure. First, hold police and district attorneys to the same standards as the rest of us. Like Cassandra said, less time involving police and things like loitering, jaywalking, also known as the broken window Policing. She also mentioned better representation on the police force. More people that look like Cassandra or me representing the communities they serve. And for the average person, just getting involved politically, pressing leaders for change, going beyond the ballot. But even with those solutions, we're a long way from Dr. King's vision. 57 years to the date, Jacobs Blake family stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the very same spot as Dr. King did in 1963, with the same message to America. We'll close out where we began and let his sister have the final word.
1: America, your reality is not real. Catering to your delusions is no longer an option. We will not pretend. We will not be your docile slave. We will not be a footstool to oppression. Most of all, we will not dress up this genocide and boo and call it police brutality. We will only pledge allegiance to the truth.
0: On our next episode, we look at another Legacy Milwaukee issue. An issue that was protested violently and peacefully in the 1960s and still rife with inequality today housing
2: what makes milwaukee stand out chicago detroit cleveland buffalo they're segregated but what's different our suburbs don't look anything like their suburbs and if you look at buffalo detroit chicago and cleveland a significantly larger number of black people living in their suburbs
0: reggie will take us through the history of redlining milwaukee and how black people were kept from building generational wealth Plus, we talk to an array of Milwaukee orgs actively working to fix the problem. That's coming up next time on By Every Measure.
2: By Every Measure is hosted by Tariq Moody and Reggie Jackson, executive produced and edited by Nate Imig, with additional production support from 88.9 Program Director Jordan Lee, Marketing Director Sarah McClanahan marketing coordinator, Aaron Begada, web editor, Evan Rentleski, audio producer, Salam Fatayer, executive director, Kevin Suker, content marketing manager, Amalinda Burritch, community engagement manager, Maddie Reardon, and imaging manager, Kenny Perez. Handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab and our sincerest thanks to our members for making all Radio Milwaukee content possible. By Every Measure, an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.